Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Varying Viewpoints podcast. The podcast is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. I am Anna K. Rowe, and I'm a visiting scholar at the Proctor Institute and a doctoral candidate studying higher education and student affairs at Ohio University. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing career trends and planning in higher education in the pandemic era. We'll also be doing some visioning for higher ed beyond the pandemic as well. And I am so excited about today's discussion with our guest, Dr. Tierney Bates. Dr. Bates, we connected quite a while now, and I'm so excited and happy that we're finally able to have this podcast and have this conversation. So I'm so glad that you're here today. I am glad to be here, Anna Kay, and I'm excited to have this great conversation. So I look forward to the questions, the discussion, and the learning for all of us. Thank you. Likewise. So for those who may not know you very well, can you share a little bit with us about your professional background and your experience working in higher education and career development? I sure would. I sure would. So again, uh, Dr. Tierney Bates, I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio, the great state of Ohio, of course. Uh, And that's where I say my educational attainment and pathway into working in higher education all started. Uh, As I tell people, uh, I was the typical overachiever student involved in everything on campus and didn't realize I could make a career out of it. And so uh, here I do sit from you now and have this conversation about where I am now, uh, currently working at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, But I go back and talk a lot about the career mapping uh, for professionals that work in higher education and how to be more strategic in that process uh, overall. But uh Got my bachelor's and master's in higher education at University of Akron, MBA from Bryan College, and my doctorate degree from Spalding University. Uh, And so I've been on this trajectory uh, to be in a senior level role, which I'm currently in right now. But hopefully uh, one day, you never know if God willing, I might be able to sit in the seat of a college presidency uh, if anybody's willing to put up with me. Uh, So those are the different things that I think of and process uh, overall. But uh, really been in the field 20 plus years. Uh, I have worked in corporate. I have worked in nonprofit uh, over the course of my work experience. And so I think I bring a different perspective to the field, having been able to work in the corporate and nonprofit realm and how it's all intertwined in some regards around a work environment. Uh, even though we're working in different spaces, there's things that I say people uh, that are common. You're going to deal with people. So human resources. You're going to deal with budget issues, no matter what, if you're in corporate, higher education, uh, and then you're going to deal with policy uh, overall. And so those are the three things I tell people to get really good at, because uh, those will be the thorns in your side. Excellent. Thank you so much. I think you have touched on so much. And within in your career, you've managed to to work in so many different areas of higher education, and it, it has all come full circle. Thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing that. So we're going to move into our questions now. And I remember seeing you sharing an article recently on LinkedIn um, that was written by Dr. Kevin McClure that talks about, you know, colleges, the challenges that they're having in hiring and also retaining folks. Colleges are hiring, but do people want to work there? Higher ed used to be insulated from the whims of the labor market, but not so more. Which brings me to our first question. You know, higher education in the United States is constantly evolving and has undergone significant changes, systemic changes, several changes which have been exacerbated by the ongoing pandemic. What are some of the trends that you're observing in the field as it relates to hiring and retention? And if you also want to make reference to that article, because I know you you prefaced it by saying that you've also been going through some of these challenges when it comes to hiring and retention. It's an interesting time to be in this field. So, Anna Kay, just today I offered a job to someone and I got turned down again. Wow. Uh, so it is interesting because what we are in right now due to the pandemic is an employer or employee world, meaning they will dictate the terms of an employment moving forward, not only because of what's happened through the pandemic, Uh, but also the next generation of students uh, that are coming out of colleges, Generation Z, uh, most of them do not want to work like mom and dad did. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the data, 50% of those students want to go into an entrepreneurial opportunity. And so that means they've grown up with the Instagrams, the Ubers, 
you know, the Facebooks, all that other stuff. And they see themselves as entrepreneurs, but not just in a linear that I'm going to go get a degree and work for the next 30 years as a nurse or as a history professor or everything like that. They see themselves doing multiple different things. And the pandemic has exposed that because people now realize, hey, I can't put all my eggs in one basket. I have to have multiple baskets or multiple opportunities around either resources for myself to come in from an income standpoint or just learning and putting my passion with my skills and abilities. So you mentioned that article. And if you mention anything, I'll break a couple of things down for you. We had 2.9 million people that did not come back to work in August of this year. We had 4.4 million people who decided just to stay home and not go back to work. So if you start looking at the data, what you have is these people who said, I'm fed up, I'm done. You know, the pandemic is full stuff. And they decided, hey, I'm not coming back to work. And they didn't go back to that specific industry. Now, what you do see is people going to different career industries altogether. I'll give you an example. I have colleagues I know who have worked in higher education literally 15, 20 years, have left higher education because of burnout, and now are working in ed tech. And I think I've been saying this probably for about two years. If you want to leave higher ed, whether you're a faculty member, uh, administrator, yeah, staff member, go work in ed tech. It's the flexibility of uh, working remote and from home. You also can make more money. So these industries that are developing around us from an educational standpoint, uh, I'll take EAB, Handshake, all these platforms people grow that are developing, they need talent. Well, when they're developing these programs, they're going to our schools and, and I guess recruiting people like myself and like you mm -hmm. who have that experience versus, hey, let me teach all this experience because guess what? We're the greatest salespeople. We're the ones that can believe in the technology to say, yeah, we use this. I use this on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, when I worked at the University of North Carolina, this is how impactful it was. And then schools want to also look at how they scale from a scale of economy technology to impact student success uh, overall. And then you just had a huge retirement. Um, you had three over 3 million people who decided to retire, but on pace this year, there was only supposed to be a million and a half. So 3 million people retired. And so you have this huge vacuum where people are like, I'm not going back to work for pennies on a dollar and these horrible work hours. So I don't care if you're in law. I don't care uh, if you're in manufacturing. Everybody's suffering right now. And the big question everybody asks is, where are they doing? Yeah. Where are they going? Well, guess what? We live in a digital uh, society. My brother Ubered for a whole year when he left his job and made more money Ubering than he did, you know what I'm saying, working a full-time job. Wow. So we have to kind of consider, right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we have to consider digital transformation has opened up so many things around e-commerce and ways for people to make money other ways than versus punching a clock. Uh, the burnout in higher education, particularly for student affairs professionals, is real. Why? It is all of, we came into this field for the love of the students. When yes. I came into the field, it was for the love of students, particularly students that look like me because they needed a mm -hmm. role model uh, at these predominantly white institutions that have somebody to look up to can help them navigate that space. That can be taxing, especially you know if you've been in the field 10, 15, 20 years and you're still making $45,000 a year. Absolutely. So, and then you go out and read about the presidential contracts and you know, the, the great hundred hundred million dollar football coaches and all this other great stuff. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right. I, I, you know, I uh -huh. thought about this when I was in my one row. I was like, wait, I'm actually impacting retention. But if I was in corporate America, retention would mean a bonus. Right. <laughs> so these type of things, people are starting to wake up. And people that are in masters of higher education or college student affairs or CSP programs, we're, there's a disconnect there, too. There's a disconnect versus reality of what we're teaching in the classroom versus yes. what's going on in yes. the field. And people are not going for it. I, I laugh when a student, I had a student walk in my office last week because we, we help students with their job negotiations. $120,000 a year base salary, a $27,000 sign-on bonus. That's not it. And a $23,000 retention bonus if they stay for at least two years. Wow. Now, if that was me coming out with a bachelor's degree, 
I would not be talking to you right now. Right, right. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, wow. But that's the opportunities a lot of our students have based upon their majors and, and all the other great stuff uh, coming out because talent is important and it's demanding. Yet you tell somebody in a CSP program or higher education program that they're going to be like, what? The base salary coming out is I'm going to be in res life and make maybe 40. Exactly. So again, we have to think about the career mapping. And I tell people, if you find a passion for what you do, the money will come. I love higher education. It is my profession. You know, have you ever seen uh, the one movie, uh, uh, 300, where he asked the men, what is your profession? And they go like, oh, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like that, like their profession is being fighters. Well, this is my profession. So I know higher education, not just student affairs. I know higher education. And so in that regard, it is my passion. So the money has came over the course of my career. Now, if I base everything upon money, though, I would have made wrong decisions. Yes. Yet I still know that individuals need to live, they need to have certain things like that. And that's also a society thing now because, you know, everybody puts on every plate they eat and, you know, every little bag they buy and all that stuff on social media in some regards. So mm-hmm. it's important for us to understand that. But when we look at that article and you look at the data, higher education now is feeling that fact. You can't fill faculty positions. Um, you can't fill staffing positions. Uh, people are leaving left and right. People are getting turned down. Like I told you, I, I think I posted three people turned me down. I got another one that happened today. Um, and it's just those little idiosyncrasies. I actually reach out to people to ask, like, hey, why did you turn us down uh, in some regards? And they'll tell you. And you're like, ah. And when I talk about budget, people, and policy, it's our policies that are blocking us from getting great talent. Absolutely. Right so we have to take a real look at our HR policies our flexible work pilot programs, um, impact on students. And what the fear is in higher education, particularly in student affairs, if everybody's not in the office from sunup to sundown, the student experience is going to fall apart. Not true. That's not true. We can see through data, we can see through certain programmings from a hybrid model, we actually have seen an increase, if you talk to some colleagues, on student engagement and involvement. And you've heard from students. I want the student experience, but I don't necessarily need to go to all my classes in person. I mean, I literally have a student who's taking all classes online, but living in the residence halls, right? What does that mean? They want to be around their friends. They want to go to the programs that we provide. They want to join a fraternity or sorority. They want to go to homecoming events because those are the things everybody remembers when they're in college. I couldn't tell you what I got on my my mass media one-on-one exam, you know, final exam mm-hmm. 20 some years right. ago, right? I couldn't tell you that. Mm-hmm. I can tell you about all the fun I had when I was an RA, um, when, you know, I was uh, on SGA. I can tell you about those memories that talk about my experience and why I loved my institution and was involved and all the other great stuff. So how do we hone those things uh, for our current students? But then also, how do we give our staff a break? Because the perception as we push out more and more people into the field of higher education and work, particularly in student affairs, is that you have to address every little thing, every little need. And if you don't, you're a bad professional. That's not true. We address based upon capacity. We address based upon we got to take care of the people from well-being. So how are we telling our students to be well-being and we're not well? Right. And that's the biggest thing that we have to do. So we have to talk about remote work, you know, flex scheduling, you know, different things. And our students get it because if we model it, they will model it themselves. Wow. I, I Listen, mic drop moments. I am here snapping. I am just nodding away because all of this. And I'm hearing so many of the recurring themes. I, we hosted a Twitter chat, uh, I think in July, talking about this career planning in the pandemic. And the responses are spot on to a lot of the things that you talked about. Flexibility, trust, trusting your people, trusting your team. You know, if you believe in them when you hired them, why do you need to micromanage them and see them every day? You know, it's it's flexibility. And a lot of folks seem to be asking for these very same things. And your point about policy is what is driving people away. Some of the responses we received were this, you know, people, women of color, faculty of color, student affairs folks generally are just saying no more often. They're literally leaving, as you said, in droves more often than not without having another job to fall back on. They're willing to take that risk. And why is that? We truly have to get to the heart of what's going on. And, and a lot of what you said, you just hit the nail on the head. And I, I remember seeing a few memes recently that someone shared that she tried to, to pay her rent with her um, passion card and her service card, and it got declined. <laughs> 
you know, and you know, we oh, that's definitely getting declined nowadays. <laughs> it got it got declined. You know, service, service, service. Especially if you're in faculty roles, you're always serving, and we talk about exposure and and passion. But you know, your point about understanding the needs of people and their realities is so important because we have to take care of our people. Well, we we do. If we don't take care of our people, we'll we'll have what we're facing now moving forward. So the top issues moving forward in higher education will be around talent. It will be around well-being, not just for the students, but for that talent that you have on campus, faculty and staff wise, uh, moving forward. And then also innovation. When I say innovation is that we've been in this space as higher education. It's so funny, you know, corporate entities can see a problem and move tomorrow, right, to address it. It would take us, and we saw that during the pandemic, we've been talking about online, we've been talking about offering all this other stuff. It took a catastrophic pandemic for us to do something that would take normally five to 10 years to do. Yes. So now where are we going to go and what lessons have we learned? Because we're still in the pandemic and now they're talking about Omicron, Zeta, Phi Beta something is coming (laughs) next as far as that is concerned Right. uh, as as a variant. So what does that mean for us to be ahead? We're going to be living in this pandemic for probably another two or three years. And I know people don't want to hear that because Again, everybody got a vaccine. Not everybody is paying, playing by the rules. Uh, I just had someone I know whose husband just died from COVID. Uh, so it's important for us to understand that we're still in this pandemic uh, and, and it's not going to just go away. So what does that mean for us in higher education to shift and innovatively think a little different to impact students? Also, what does it mean for us when we know higher education is under attack politically? Yes. Because based upon where you live, what state you're in, you're either getting funds for higher education or you're not, or people are questioning what is the value of higher education when a General Assembly, a Casera, a Google, and other organizations come along and like, hey, you don't have to go get a four-year degree. We can teach you these skills in 12 to 18 months and you can walk right into an $80,000, $90,000 a year job. So what does that mean for us when we're telling a student who's majoring in English, like, hey, you're majoring in English and they're still trying to figure it out? Yes. Because 73% of all students that graduate from college do not go into their intended major. So what are we doing to talk about skills and credentialing to add value to the college degree for what employers will need for the future? Because 65% of the jobs that we see today will be different in the next 25 years. Because if you'd have told me I could have been a social media influencer when I was in college, that's what I would have majored in. And that's why I'd be retired right now based upon what they make. Absolutely. Uh, and so it's important for me to understand that is that the jobs that don't exist is how we're preparing people. Uh, and then, again, anybody's got a, a child underneath the age of eight years old nowadays, the jobs that we're talking about will be different by the time they graduate college or come out in some regards. And so we have to have a conversation of what is the value of higher education um, and what are we preparing students for? Because now mom and dad is questioning that. Like, wait, I sent you to college. I'm paying these big bills. Where's the ROI? School and I get, yeah. And, you know, what's the return? And we have to do a better value. People in higher education hate these words when we say, you know, the unique value of higher education is career and career development. Well, people say, oh, it's not about that. It is probably about 50 percent of that. I'm going to say right. that. Because where do you learn? Where do you learn your leadership skills? Where do you learn to, uh, you know, build rapport with individuals as far as that? If you're a college student, my understanding is you, you learn these skill sets. Because if you just came fresh out of high school and you go right into the workforce, you're already at a disadvantage in the learning curve. Whereas in college, it gives you those other formative years to develop your own personal uh, skills. Uh, and that's what employers talk about, soft skills. You know, people don't have soft skills like they used to do in some regards. Not only with the hard skills, but the soft skills are so important moving forward. And so we have to shift our mindset whether it's working with faculty, staff, and administrators, that career is where we can stand to say to politicians in the state of Ohio, in the state of North Carolina, we graduate your future workforce in all industries because, again, everybody wants someone with a degree when it comes to most jobs nowadays. But that's shifting, too, because we haven't did our due diligence in higher education. But they say, you know, you don't need a degree because... If Google can certify you, if Coursera can certify you, or General Assembly can certify you, and these are actually certified, and if they actually got together yes. and formulate their own national certification, guess what? I would probably even tell my own daughter, oh, if you can go get that certification, you know what I'm saying, and, and you know, come out making 80 grand a year within 18 months, go get that, and then go to school part-time. You know what I'm saying? Because now you're developing both sides of the house. So we again have to have this whole, what is the unique value proposition 
for higher education when it's under attack. And it's so funny the people who are attacking us are the same people who have college degrees, but are saying our college degree is worth it. And I'm like, it worked for you, didn't it? Uh, and so it's important for us to have these dialogues and share what our value is. We as state institutions really must share that because we drive the economy, we drive the research, we're able to impact from an agricultural standpoint, uh, from a research standpoint, uh, from a workforce standpoint. reason why companies are coming to North Carolina, we've got the workforce. We've got an educated population, a lot of schools here. So, of course, it's smart for Apple and Google, Nike and other organizations to come here because they're like, if I go there, I'm going to have these six-figure high-paying jobs. I know automatically I can tap into North Carolina, right. North Carolina Central right. University, you know what I'm saying, Duke. Boom, that, that workforce is there. I don't have to import it. I have it there. And that's why everybody will move to the area because of that. So states and organizations have to get smarter around that. And then we need to go into the K through 12 level as well to work with them, to make them prepared for when they come not only to college, but also getting them ready when they leave college. Because you will hear employers say, your students are great, but they're not ready. So we have to do a better job of what that unique value proposition is in higher education. And higher education as a whole has not come together to do that. So you got ASCU, AAUC, you got all the AAU. We have not come together and say our value is this to this country, to this, uh, you know, this workforce development is part of that. It's particularly for students of color because the yes. greatest advantage for us to sell is, like I'm trying to sell here in North Carolina, we're the number one place for talent of color. That's different. Yes. But if I say that as an employer, I want to come recruit your school. Because that's what everybody's saying. Oh, you know, after George Floyd, everybody wants diversity. We hot night right now. Yes. But I tell people we've always been hot. It's the simple fact we've never had the opportunity. Right. And so if an organization can carve out and say we're the number one place for you to come recruit talent of color and then you produce it. Guess what? You get very talented folks into great jobs. You create a pipeline of people of color who are able to go into leadership roles. And you also create an engaged alum who will come back and give back to the cultural center, give back, you know what I'm saying, to certain multicultural programming. So again, higher education just hasn't gotten together as a whole from a national perspective to share this and, and, and nominate it. And, and, and who does it really good is community colleges. Yes. Because community colleges, you can go and get that associate's degree and go right to work, or you can work while you're getting it in some regards. And so we have to have this whole conversation and reinvigoration of it. And I get it. I'm on an R1 research institution. Um, with research institutions, it's always going to be focused on the research, but you still got to produce the talent. Absolutely. Very well stated. And you've highlighted many of the trends and major concerns that are influencing the great resignation that we're seeing right now. And you've given such excellent advice regarding how we go forward. You've also talked a little bit about things that individuals need to be doing right now. You've talked about certain industries like ed tech, which I'm personally now um, going to look into much more as someone who's going on the job market next, next year. You've given me a lot to think about. But is there any advice, additional advice that you would share for individuals who are exploring career opportunities in higher ed? Or as many are probably doing right now, they're exploring opportunities to pivot outside of academia during the pandemic? Sure, sure. Whether you're looking in higher education or you're looking outside of higher education and like yourself, someone who will go into market and start looking, there's two things you need to have. You need to have performance currency. Your performance currency is how well do you do your job? And when you do it, do people go to you as a leader and as a person who we know will produce results? If you have strong performance currency, it would always help you career wise moving forward because you can provide the results and people are results oriented. And I know I'm using business language and all the other great stuff, mm -hmm. but whether it's business or education, if these kids don't graduate, guess what? We get hit. So it's results oriented moving forward. Right. The second currency you need is relationship currencies. And what we don't do a good job of in higher education, at least particularly for students of color, is build relationship currency. And when I talk about that is, I would tell everybody, sit down and write down your circle of influence. Who are the people that are talking about you when you're not around, around your performance currency or your likability? Because think about this, nine times out of 10, when we hire somebody, it's based upon, yep, yeah, they can perform a job because their resume tells us all this other great stuff. But do I like Anna Kay? Right. I see myself really working with Anna Kay, and that's how we hire people sometimes. That's, that's true. We need to admit it. That's true. Exactly. We need to admit that. And so that's how sometimes that that's also an issue because 
that's why we get into the fit thing, right? So people are like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to hire Anna Kay because, you know, she'll probably remember like me and she cool and da 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 that's why mm-hmm. for, at predominantly white institutions, we don't ever get enough faculty of color or administrators of colors because we're always looking for fit versus the outlier. I look for the outlier. Yes. I look for somebody who's going to bring something different, new, and challenge us. Not somebody who's just going to walk right in and say, oh, yep, I'm part of the culture. And, you know, this is great. I'm going to go along with everything. Not ask questions. You know, that that's no fun. That's no fun for me, at least. I want somebody to be like, hey, how can we be innovative? How can we try something new and different and push the, the needle? Because we get to discover exactly. it that way. So, Answering your question, performance currency is huge. So individuals need to make sure that they do a good job. If they meet deadlines, they cross their T's, dot their I's, and can produce results, key. Relationship currency is important because 80% of all jobs are received or gotten by relationships. You got to think about this. We go online and you're going to do this. You're going to look for jobs and you're going to go apply. Yeah. I tell people... Those days of application process is over for me. Now, will I apply, meaning I have to turn in my materials? Yes. But nine times out of 10, it will be based upon a relationship that I will get the opportunity or someone will speak of me to someone about that. That's how I ended up at Chapel Hill. Yeah. I ended up at Chapel Hill because someone I knew over the course of my career spoke highly of me, knows my skill sets, my abilities, and I'm here. Think about that. I'll give you another example. Uh, I know a couple of college presidents. Since I'm going through this college president program and I was with one and I was telling him about, you know, you know, what what institutions I've been to, institutions are trying to recruit me, all this other great stuff. He was at a meeting three weeks later and I had told him about the one institution and he specifically told the chancellor of that institution, that guy is the guy you need. That is the person you need to have a conversation with for your vice presidency job. That's the connection individuals need to have. Now, I didn't know he did that. That's the thing, right? So he was doing that. And that's what we call sponsorship. He was sponsoring me, even though I didn't know he did that until I talked to that chancellor. And the chancellor asked me, like, uh, do you know such and such? And I said, yeah, I do. And he was like, that guy really spoke very highly of you. He said, I need to hire you. So again, wow, wonderful. that is what happens with relationship currency. And we have to develop our relationship currency twofold, not only internally, but externally. We got to create our board of advisors. As I like to say, and then your board of advisors need to change, adapt to whatever your needs are, uh, as far as that's concerned. And you constantly work on relationships when it comes to relationship currency. You don't just say, like, I, I get a lot of students who are like, oh, I want you to be my mentor. That's fine. Cool. And then I won't talk to them for like a year and a half. And they call me up like, hey, I need a letter of reference. I ain't talked to you in a year and a half. What you want me to write a letter of reference and lie about? Right. You know what I'm saying? As far as that's concerned. Right. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I was like, you work on relationships. So if you wanted me to write you a letter of reference, I should have talked to you at least at least three times, at least three times in the last year and a half. And so, you know, I have mentors who I go to and I talk to them at least on a quarterly basis. I, and, and that's the agreement I had. I said, look, I ain't going to bug you, but we're going to talk at least on a quarter. I'm going to need an hour of your time. I'm going to give you all the updates of what's going on with me. You can tell me some things, give me some feedback, all the other great stuff. But guess what? When you do that, when they're out and about with other leaders, and they're like, oh, I'm looking for some talent. Oh, Anna Kay, Tyranny Bates, you want to talk to them too. Why? Because I've built those relationships. And they'll call you. They'll call, hey, are you looking for something? Yeah, I had a phone call a couple weeks ago. He was like, yeah, I think I might be hiring a new vice chancellor. You, you interested? And I was like, yeah, I'm listening. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know that's I'm, the power of I'm that connection. I'm not going to say no, but I'm listening. But that's the power of the connection. He reached out to me and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking I need to go in a new direction and, you know. I know I hear your name a lot and I know you. So you, you interested? Of course, I'm, I'm always going to listen. You know what I'm saying? You know, I'm like everybody else right now. It's a great resignation. What them coins looking like? You know what I'm saying? Right. We can have right. a conversation. Right. <laughs> but all jokes aside. Where the money resides. Right. Right. But all jokes aside, that is the key. That relationship right then and there could lead to an opportunity that can help impact me, my family, all the other great stuff moving forward. So we have to hone in. And then we have the career map. And I talk a lot about this. You got to go where you know you're needed the most, where you can grow the most, and then what are your goals? Most people stay too long in roles. Yes. Because I see it right now, and that's why everybody's left. They stayed in an assistant director or director role, or they had other circumstances. I tell them, and I get it. People get married, have kids, all that other great stuff, and they kind of get pigeonholed. I'm working with somebody right now. It's like, hey, I just bought a house. I was like, you can rent it. Because think about it. There's only going to you're going to be where you need to be based upon what you're willing to sacrifice for. 
And then talking to her, I said, okay, you bought a house, but you make good money. The next opportunity that I'm, that I'm trying to help you with, you're going to make more money. You can rent a house. Yes. I was like, you can even, you can sell a house. You might not make money off of it, selling it, depending upon how the market is. But you don't take a true loss. You're caught in the house, but not thinking like, oh, I can advance myself career-wise that eventually that, I, I, that house can be, you know, an asset to me, right, in some regards. Because if even I move back, like if I was to move from North Carolina, I'm not selling my house. I'm keeping it. That, it's too hot down here right now. You know what I'm saying? We're, you know, they're paying cash on delivery for houses down here. So I'm like, no, I'm going to hold on to it because I know I'm going to come out like a fat rat. So there's things we have to think about in our career. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned that early on um, in my career. I've lived in great places in, uh, uh, in that way. But there's no place that, you know, if I wasn't married, it'd be different. I'd go to Alaska. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? But, you know, in my mind frame, I ain't got to be there forever. I can go to Alaska, great, great experiences, do two years, come back to Texas. Like Move on to the, something else. That's the beauty of our field. We don't have to stay in location. I get it. I've never been loyal to a school. And I know y'all recording this. I'm loyal to leaders. Yeah. And there's a difference. Because leaders will invest in you, take you to certain heights and places and all that other great stuff. Schools are great. You can have a great environment and a great thing, but it's based upon the leaders. It's based yeah. upon the talent. Yeah. It's not based upon the school. It's based upon that people. You've heard people say, oh, I love working here. The people are great. It's not the school. It's not Ohio University. It's the people at Ohio University that make up Ohio University, as far as that's concerned, that make it a great place to be for those people who love to be there. Absolutely. But if all those people left tomorrow, you'd be like, wait, Ohio University is not as great as I thought it was because it was the people. So I tell people when you're looking for jobs, when you're looking at your career mapping, you want to go where people and talent drive the culture. And that's really where the issue is because culture is eating strategy because you don't have the right talent. Wow, that's powerful. That's another mic drop moment right there. Powerful, powerfully stated. Thank you so much. So many gems. Oh my goodness. And I think for this next question that you've touched on this a little bit as well, you've sort of touched on all of my questions in different ways, but that's okay. Um, So what should educators and leaders at our institutions be focused on doing right now to be doing, they need to be doing drastically differently to prepare our students for careers in response to what we're seeing in the pandemic, but also thinking about the future. And I know you touched on this earlier. What are a few salient points that they should be getting into our students or things they need to be doing drastically different right now to think about the current realities but also beyond. We need to, one, start teaching life design on every college campus. Um, if you look at John Hopkins, Vanderbilt, Stanford, some of the major schools that are using life design, we need to teach it at the first year and second year level for undergraduate students, and we also need to teach it for graduate students. Why? Because seeing now, working with our graduate school here, even at UNC, People don't understand the integration of their skills and abilities to any field. I'll give you an example. I had a student who worked in our annual fund, but her major was in uh, psychology. She wanted to work around mental health and she wanted to work with you know people of color. I said, you can do all that. And she looked at me like I'm crazy. She's like, well, how? I was like, there's an organization out there that's a nonprofit organization focused on mental health for people of color and needs somebody to help them raise from it. She's like, you think so? I said, I bet you $100. She found it. I said, now what we need to do is create an informational interview opportunity for you. She's like, what? What's that? An informational interview opportunity is for you to go talk to the CEO or senior leaders of that organization and talk about why they do what they do in that field, learn more about it. And then are they looking for talent? Are they looking for someone with your skill sets and abilities overall? Because everybody likes to talk about themselves. So if you go and talk about, hey, how'd you get in this field? And you're the CEO of this nonprofit. They're going to tell you. And then you talk about their personal and professional life. And then you you, you switch it up. You start asking questions like, well, what do you look for in talent? I'm thinking I'm interested in this field. Uh, I kind of want to do what you want to do one day. And most people will then say, great. How, you know, how can I be a service? That's your opportunity to say, I'm looking for a mentor. I'm looking for somebody that I can follow up with and more about that. And you start saying, yes. An internship, maybe. There you go. An internship and experiential learning, right? And then that builds your relationship currency. So we need to think about life design. Every student, every student at every college should have an internship experiential learning opportunity before they leave. They should have both. Internship that is paid and then an experiential learning opportunity, which is project-based that they can speak to around their unique value and the skill sets they learn in both of those. We don't do that. So when most students graduate, 
and they walk into a job environment. Like I just dealt with on Monday with one of my students who just graduated in May and is in a job environment, but she never did an internship experience learning. It's an adjustment because she never was in the office space, right? She never was doing certain things overall and she didn't know how to interact. So if you look at life design, experiential learning and internships, every student should have those in their curriculum moving forward, particularly for students in arts and sciences majors, because they're still trying to figure it out. And they're always jealous of business and engineering majors because the number one thing most employers come in hire is business and engineering majors. Why? I tell people the business degree is the most universal degree that is in every aspect of an organization, nonprofit, higher education, government, you name it, a business degree, whether it's finance, accounting, marketing, you know what I'm saying, real estate, whatever it is, what you learn in those business principles is in everything we do. I even say the church, like my father-in-law is a pastor. The church is a business because if we don't tithe and offer, you know what I'm saying? He ain't getting paid. The lights ain't staying on in the church. And somebody in there doing them books. You know what I'm saying? And somebody who's doing the books usually is somebody with an accounting experience. So it's important for us to understand that is that how do we make sure that we have people have these experiences moving forward? What we don't do is I talked about with that one student is talk about how we integrate all of that. So she found that opportunity to do fundraising, work with the organization as a nonprofit around mental health for people of color. Yet we think everything must be linear and we have to stop doing that because even yourself, when you get to graduate, you'll have a PhD and you came to school for your PhD. And I tell people out of all four of my degrees, the one I use the most is my MBA because I'm dealing with human resources, budgeting, policy, all the things that you learn in the MBA program. And the business principles of everything we do is interwoven to every aspect of our transferable overall. Absolutely. Very transferable. So I tell all undergraduate students, they should minor in business. I don't care if you're getting an English degree, communications degree, you should minor in business because it just adds value to you to be able to speak to business principles and different things like that to move an organization forward. That's why the MBA is looked at as the highest level of a degree in some regards, um, because it helps organizations be better. Now, for PhDs or graduate students, I would tell them to take some business courses or get some kind of certification around business or marketing principles, because, again, it adds value to it. As a researcher, you want to be able to go out and talk about your criteria, but you need to market it and also put it in layman's terms. As a researcher, you can get paid based upon your research for organizations to kind of help them navigate around their leadership development and training. We don't think about the entrepreneurial aspect as a PhD student or a person with a PhD that we can do because we feel if I got a PhD, you got to pay me an X amount of money. I'm an expert, which you are in your area, but you're an expert in your actual research, but you don't know your research is intellectual property that can expound and impact others and can be entrepreneurial. So yeah, so again, life design, experiential learning, internships, um, get to know people and build the relationships, not only early in your career, but throughout your whole career. I think you need to be involved in the community aspect as well. I've, every community I've ever lived in, I've worked with nonprofit organizations and volunteered. That expands your, your exposure. It also expands your circle of influence uh, as far as that is concerned. Um, and understand that you want to build transferable skills. So like you said, you're, you're going to be on a market and we're throwing out ed tech. You get hired. There's no doubt in my mind, ed tech will hire you quicker than a faculty role. And as a junior faculty member coming out, you'll probably make more in the ed tech space when, than as a junior faculty. Now, you have a little bit more flexibility as a faculty member. You know what I'm saying? You might have a 2-2 course load and focus on your research and all the other great stuff. But again, your expertise, your experience is what you're getting paid for from the corporate entity in that ed tech firm in that regard. And again, the way they're setting up things nowadays, everybody's working remote anyways. You know what I'm saying? So guess what? I can have my best life with a remote job working at EdTech, living off the beach of North Carolina. Florida, <laughs> there you go. Or Texas or Jamaica, right? There you go. That sounds great. But listen, you're speaking my language. You are speaking, and you know I like warm weather. <laughs> that will influence my job search for sure. So imagine you going to Jamaica, living there and working remote with EdTech and making $120,000 a year. The dream. Let's make it happen. The so dream. that's why the great resignation is real. It People is, want a it quality is. of life 
that they've never had before and do not want to work like the baby boomer generation or grandma did where they were on a linear track. They did enjoy life because 70% of people hate their jobs and then they're miserable. That affects their health, their well-being, all this other great stuff because where you work and how you work and the team you work with affects your well-being. Absolutely. A few folks, I, I remember going through the Twitter chat responses in preparing for today's interview, and a lot of folks mentioned that the common issue, the flexibility of working from other locations and through different modalities, people keep talking about this. They keep talking about normalizing open conversations about mental health and well-being. And we need to stop this. Our, we, we keep telling people, we keep saying we value mental health and well-being, but we're not. Our policies say, say something very different. So we have to really talk about these things and stop paying lip service because this is also influencing why people are saying, you know, academia is not for me and they're leaving and they're never, they're not looking back. So we truly have to be very real about these conversations because the flexibility folks are demanding it. And you talked about, you know, students who are coming out now, they're looking at the gig economy. They're looking for digital work. They want that flexibility of travel. They're also considering their student loans. Mm. You know, we talk about student loan debt. They're looking at the investment and they're looking at um, opportunities to live the kind of life that they want to live. So we have to pivot. We have to change because we're going to be left behind and we're going to continue to see what we're seeing and not being able to fill these positions in higher education because folks are, are looking at more viable options. So we're winding down and I wanted to, I don't think this was a question I shared with you, but I'm very interested in finding out what are some of the critical questions prospective employees and job seekers should be bringing to the table while job hunting. We asked this question during the Twitter chat we had the other day and a few, I'll share a few of the things that folks mentioned. They talked about on-campus interviews. Perhaps we need to be moving virtual with these particularly for the maybe the final round, you know, you, you have to be on all the time, you have to be traveling, you know, there's a, a lot of financial implications there, certain things like that we should be talking about. And another one was, you know, talking about the use of space, talking about compensation, professional development opportunities. What other questions you do you think persons should be asking? One other point was the metrics of success asking what will success look like in this in this role so for someone who's on the job market or pivoting right now what are some things they should be asking their employees their employers so so i definitely say what does success look like and if you find someone who can't give you an actual two points one from a a if you were hired today and i always ask this question if i hired you today a year from now what would success look like they need to give you a number because let's be honest, we always talk about assessment. So that assessment means numbers. Well, it means that you would help increase X, Y, and Z, help us impact retention, because that's what all we talk about, student success in that regard. And the second thing is they should be able to articulate how it is uh, addressed around performance, meaning like if you didn't meet your whatever it is, how are we addressing it for we can make sure we can move the needle forward in some regards and have an impact on you in the organization as well. I think the, the work from anywhere, the interview process, you're right. I'm going to be honest with you. Everybody's going to always want to bring a finalist to campus. That's just the way our field has been uh, over the years because people are, we, we're in hiring. We got, we got Philly people. I need to see you. I need to be able to touch establish you. that connection. Right. You know what I'm saying? And establish that connection. And the, the, the candidate needs to go too. You can get a different vibe when you go to campus versus being oh, absolutely. Um, on Zoom. I'll give you a prime example. Because they could talk a good talk. Oh, they, man. they could talk a good talk on. <laughs> I went on an interview and, you know, they selling me the yellow brick road. When I got there, I started talking to students and they were like, why the hell would you want to come here? And this place is horrible. And I'm <laughs> right. like, wait, y'all was on the Zoom smiling like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. We're excited to talk to you. Exactly. They, they were just selling me a whole different thing. And there was a disconnect. So I realized on campus, because yes. it's a two-way street recruiting. There is a disconnect and your gut, your gut will tell you when you're on campus, if this is right foot, don't chase the job just to be chasing the job. I tell people all the time that don't be like, oh, you know, it's the next step up. I'm gonna make more money because you can walk into a situation where, yeah, you make more money. Yeah, it's a step up. And then three months later, you're like, I'm trying to get the hell out of here. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So you got to make sure you cross your T's and dot all your questions moving forward as far as that's concerned. I also feel Everybody needs to ask these questions. How is your salary paid for when you're interviewing for a job? 
Is your salary coming from a state line, soft money, from auxiliary services? Know how you get paid. Because during the pandemic, when Ohio University and every other school in this country had to cut staff, because that's the first thing we do, where is that being cut at? Yes. Because they're going to look for salary savings, and you know what it is. People, you don't get to be in that room when decisions are made, but you got to be careful to know, like, oh, okay, my line comes from a state line, and they ain't quick to cut state lines because they need that money because the state ain't going to pay for it. But it is soft money. It is like this. And so I could be the one to get the axe. Yes. We saw it. We saw it this year. We saw plenty of people, whether in corporate and higher education, even on the faculty side, because what happened with that, you got all these adjuncts, you know what I'm saying? Well, we're just going to stop the adjunct pool. And, you know, you full-timers, you assistant and social preference is going to have to take another course loan. Exactly. So know where your money come from. Because when I sit up in meetings and faculty and staff are complaining and you don't know where your salary line come from, then that's why you on the chopping block. <laughs> so it's important for you to understand that and ask those questions. We know organizations do not want to pay for relocation, but what they need to do is be upfront and put salaries in the job descriptions and talk about relocation during the interview process. Because I know particularly a young man I'm helping right now, the school will not be able to provide relocation for him. And the salary is only going to be 40 grand. And I said, they got to do something to help support you transitionally. That's either put you up in housing. Um, that is give you a longer time break, all these other things. We got to think about sign on one time bonuses. We're financially able to do it in higher education for staff in some regards because staff drive everything. I love my faculty. They drive it as well. But you take away staff from getting them students registered. You take away staff uh, from students going into the food services or living in the residence halls. Faculty ain't coming in to serve these students no food. Not at all. You know what I'm saying? Or, or look over their financial aid package. Not, not and all at all. Stuff. So, again, we have to do something supporting the staff. So people need to have those questions around or talk around. Are there any kind of bonus incentives and everything like that? Or some kind of way to help support the staff in these transitional opportunities and remote. You have to ask questions. Hey, do you guys have a remote policy? Is there a remote policy for all of the university or is it by your area? Because that's another thing. It might be a remote policy for the university where the university says we leave it up to the departments and the uh, divisions. And then it's up to the vice chancellor or the vice president of that division and the directors to say, yeah, we're going to have a three, two model. One day we work remote model, all the other great stuff. And most schools have a policy also, that if you take a job, so I'll give you a prime example. Um, I offered a job to someone and I, and I told them, we kept saying an interview, this is our start date, this is our target start date. And then they didn't come back and say, you know what, I can't meet that start, start date. But we have a policy to say, yeah, you can start on this day and be remote. You can be remote for up to 60 days, policy-wise. That way it gives you more time. Guess what? It gives you some time to find a place. And I know what it is. You need a couple checks in your pocket. You know what I'm saying? And you're about to make more money with this position. So at least, you know, you have an offer letter that you can take to the rental company or to whoever you need to move and everything like that. This is what I'm going to be making and start. And we're giving you an extra 60 days in that process because we have that policy to help you. But if you don't know these and ask these questions, that's the key. And what I want, want people to do is go into the interviews with questions that are real. And if you don't feel comfortable saying them, write them down, send them in the email. Because that's another thing I see. A lot of people are scared to ask. More people are comfortable. Just put it in the email. They will get answered by HR or the hiring manager uh, as far as that concern moving forward. But you've got to ask these questions. And then timeline. Nowadays, we take too long to hire people. Yes, we, we need to hire people from the time we post a position to the time we hire should be 45 days. Yes. That means in the first 20 days, you're looking through resumes and you start interviewing then. If I put a posted position tonight and I woke up and come in here on Monday morning and I already got eight applications and I see two I like, I'm doing screenings already. Yes. We got to get out of it. We lose too many people that way. We I've do. lost people that way. We do. Where we start the process. We got to get everybody on a search committee and all this other great stuff. And search committees can't agree on everything. And then before you know it, the person everybody like, oh, I already took a job and it's at Ohio University. So, again, we have to we have to take corporate entity, some of their structure Hire manager, you, you have your first round with whatever the recruiter is, an HR person. You go to the hire manager next, and then usually it's a third round, but that all happens literally in like 10 days. 
Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It can it can be done. It, it absolutely can be done. Can be done. Yeah. Anybody who works with me knows that I don't play around when it comes to hiring. By the time I post, by the time I'm done, I want to be done in 30 to 40 days. And I know some people are like, well, what if talent comes later and all that? That's fine. You know what I'm saying? That's fine. Because if, if, if the person's that much of a rock star, we're going to talk to them. Yes. You know what I'm saying? But the problem is what we have to do is we got to look through 65 resumes to find 10 people to narrow it down to eight that we're going to interview. You know what I'm saying? And by that time, you get to those eight, you got to set up times. Everybody got busy schedules all over the place in some regards. And we still don't always come up with the best talent in that. We come out with what's already in the pool in some regards versus let's vet people ahead of time and let's nominate people for these roles as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Vase. This has been an amazing discussion and there's so many gems, so many takeaways. And this I know is going to be an encouraging conversation for folks who are looking to pivot to other careers or who are going on the job market, particularly students, undergraduates and graduate. And I'm so glad in a lot of your responses that you included those different populations that go through different hurdles. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And also we want to just salute all of our folks in higher education and student affairs who are championing this work, who are in the trenches, um, you know, the folks in housing and student affairs and DEI and faculty and staff. I don't want to make sure I include everyone. Um, and also the graduate student workers, you know, as an international student myself, I know um, of the realities that we go through and teaching assistant. I'm also a TA. So I want to really salute all our student workers and everyone in higher ed who is really doing uh, amazing work to support students and to really show up during this challenging time. So Dr. Bates, thank you so much for an enlightening conversation, a powerful and informative conversation with solid advice that I know will be helpful for everyone listening today. So it's been a pleasure and I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to chat today. Uh, Anna Kay, thank you. I'm very humbled for the opportunity. You guys are great, doing great things at the Institute overall as somebody who's participated with it as well. Uh, I'm excited to my colleagues in higher education. We will get through this pandemic. We will come out stronger, better, innovative and creative on the other side. Stay the course. Anybody can reach out to me if they want career advice, career mapping, thought processing, all the other great stuff. I do have a little career coaching business on the side to help people just navigate this higher education space uh, overall. But I want to to really particularly say you can career map and design what you want out of life and work. Powerful, wonderful way to end. We will come out on the other side of this. And, and the final word too is to take care of your people and take care of your staff and st staff driving the change and driving everything. Let's take care of our people. Thank you so much, Dr. Bates. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you.